Hi Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. <laughs> Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. <laughs> uh, I'm really struggling because I sound <laughs> like this. I don't know if you can even tell on the microphone now that I say that. Me personally, I cannot. You can't tell. I feel super congested in my nose because I was I did a very you adult thing today and mm-hmm. I cleaned up the vacuum cleaner. And Ever since then, I just, I feel like just so much congestion in my nose. Yeah, I can absolutely relate. I was recently moving and like sweeping the floor and vacuuming and trying to get all the things up. And I told myself it was allergies for like a week. It was probably definitely a cold, but I blamed (laughs) it on allergies. Right now, like our entire season one was like, we were still like not even supposed to be together in the same room when we started recording. Like that was not like cool or kosher or kosher or like politically correct at all. But we were like, fuck the system. And we were like that but now you know it's still not cool to be sick right like you still can't be sick exactly which is why i feel the need to like even say this so that nobody's like hey (laughs) sounds like you're sick are you getting her in danger well do you feel in danger i i don't feel in danger and um i if i do get sick i work from home and around no one else so uh i feel very capable of recovering in safety mm-hmm. good amen amen i feel jesus also or God chilies. like so there's so many sicknesses going around or that went around like over the winter right mm-hmm. like there was the tridemic did oh, you God. the tridemic was the flu covid and rsv oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. heard all about this on netflix not netflix <laughs> NPR also starts with an N. Intersection there, link up. <laughs> there was like this tridemic, and then I don't feel like I actually know anyone who ended up with the RSV or the flu this year, but I do know someone who got strep throat that then turned into scarlet fever. That is insane. What a vintage, what a classic broad to get <laughs> what a scarlet throwback. Fever. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's insane. How do you even cure scarlet fever? Uh, antibiotics. Oh. Yeah, you which get is, a big old shot. I'm jealous of the way you said that. I always like get stuck on that word. Anti antibiotics. Yeah, because if you think too much about it, shout out to my speech therapist of like ten years. Amen. She really nailed it. I can say antibiotics. Shout out goes to you. Well, you know something I've thought about since last week was we've gotten a lot of feedback on the shoe sock, shoe shoe Mm -hmm. sock Mm -hmm. sock. I totally forgot that we talked about it, actually. We talked about it. People have been so active on the Instagram about it, you crazy. (laughs) But the thing that I realized is, like, I was committed to the sock, sock, shoe, shoe. Right, right. That's where, you know, I was like, I'm living in that camp. This is the hill I die on. For sure. But then I caught myself the other day doing sock, shoe, sock, shoe. Wow. I know. (laughs) Your brain was just like, let's... Throw for a loop for a second. <laughs> if you stand for nothing, Make you'll fall for question anything. question everything. <laughs> so it was a little bit intense. But thank you to everyone who participated in all that Instagram stuff. Because, you know, that's, you know, what we're here to do is solve, you know, crises. Christ, such as. Yeah. Crises. Sure. Crises. Such as that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you mentioned the sock shoe thing, I thought you were talking about the sock speech that I gave. And I was like, because I was still thinking about the speech uh-huh therapist thing i was like man i forgot i told that story the sock shoe sock shoe makes much more sock sense. shoe sock shoe sock shoe bless you thank you um you're gonna have to bless me probably soon <laughs> i have a lot of toilet paper over here in case i need to blow my nose um but since last week too um like i've been so interested and like a lot of people have been also interested in in the north korean topic mm-hmm. and so last week we talked about yonmi park um, who wrote uh, the book In Order to Live. I, t- I told her story last time. She wrote a book, and I read it this week. You read a whole book in a week? <laughs> yeah. Who it was, are you? It was really, really good. It was very... Wait, let's back up to you read a whole book in a week. Can we cheers to that? Cheers. I'm so proud of you. I know. I waited to get on air to tell you that. <laughs> you I am the a authentic genius. reaction. I read a book. <laughs> in a week. Yeah, I know. I am so 
so fucking proud. Well, I've been obsessed with because it it was something that I didn't know that I needed to know. Right. Until I got a little bit deeper into the research and it's just like it's like so fucked up all of it and so important and I just like wanted to, you know, learn more about because we can read all day about what other people are saying about this very tight-knit group sure. of people, right? But my interest was, like, getting kind of deeper in, seeing what she, like, you know, what she wrote about in her experiences. And, of course, like, I covered her last episode, but, like, the book just goes, like, so much deeper into her life and just, like, into the day-to-day lives of North Koreans. Some of the things that she talked about was like the the date just what it's like to be a, a living person in North Korea wow. and she was part of like the middle class uh-huh. so we talked last time about how there's like 50 different classes for sure um and she was middle class okay but like everybody in the community woke up at the same time every day they would go out do like manual labor like everybody had these different assignments because there's no like city workers, like the city belongs to everybody in a mm-hmm. weird way, or like you belong to the city, however mm-hmm. you want to look at it. So they would kind of wake up and do these various tasks um, and then come back home for breakfast and then go to school for half the day. And then at the end, like the second half of the school day was like other manual labor, like they had these like work assignments. Right. It was super interesting. But I heard a lot more about her crossing over into China, her experience with human trafficking, uh, really, really powerful book. And then just kind of her experience making it to South Korea. I would recommend it to anybody. Okay, so can you remind me of the name of the book again? Because I'm going to have to go and read it for myself now. Yes. So the book is called In Order to Live In Order by Yanmi Park. She's got another book. I have not read that one yet, but I've consumed a lot. She has a YouTube channel. She has a TED Talk, which you Shit. would love. You know yes. I love a TED I'm a sucker for a TED Talk. I know. Um, I've, I've started recently watching more of her YouTube channel because okay. she just answers questions about... Um, just various topics that people have submitted to her. Oh, cool. Um, and one of which gave me a little bit of background on uh, the topic that I'm going to talk about today. Awesome. Well, actually, that kind of takes me into the topic that I'm going to talk about today. Perfect. So would you like to talk about our topics for today? I would love to. Excellent. All right. But before we do, I feel like we need to crack one open. Amen. For season two, episode three. Season episode four. Episode four. Oh, wait, how are we? Re- <laughs> we don't know how we're releasing these. <laughs> Unclear. Yay! Regular episode three. Regular episode three. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Yay. What Cheers. are we drinking tonight? This is a pernicious. It is. It's a pernicious from Wicked, Re- Wicked Weed Brewing. Wicked Weed. It's an IPA. It's an IPA. Have you, have you ever been to Asheville, North Carolina? It's very beautiful. It's got good energy. A time or two. My parents live a stone throws away from there. We saw Andrea Gibson there. We did. Okay. So I, once again, have the distinct advantage of knowing your topic and you not knowing mine. I know. So here we are. This is literally in my notes. Here we are at the end of your first three-parter. What a way to kick off season two. Wow. It says high five. So we're going to high five. five. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Again, knowing that this is where we were headed, I couldn't help but like steer my way into my heart. Yeah, for sure. Next week, we will get back to a truly randomized pod content. But today, we are going to do a little armchair psychology Mm. and talk about the psychology of dictators. Yes. This is so good. I know. I am so excited. I really, I was super torn. I had several topics that I was like interested in writing about, but it felt like the perfect way to wind up, like wrap up your- To wind it up, wrap it down. All of those things. Usually, Wikipedia and similar sites are my friend, but for today's topic, we went straight to the research. So, oh, good. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I used Wikipedia at all for this topic, wow. actually, which is rare are you for me. better like, than usually, everyone else? <laughs> usually, I start with Wikipedia, <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, you know, just kind of get a little bit of a background. But no, I did not this time. So... I also started with a book. However, I did not read this book because you are far superior to me. In his book, The Psychology of Dictatorship, Dr. Fatali Mokhadam, 
highlights how social scientists have sought answers to questions about how do dictatorships rise and fall since World War II. Mm -hmm. Now, if you'll remember, Allison, as our history buff, uh, World War II, there were lots of talks of dictatorships. Sure. You know, Hitler was kind of a big guy at that point. Yeah, yeah. So in his book, he focuses on how these are often like outside-in perspectives because those doing the research are not part of the totalitarian dictatorship. And they tend to ignore crucial elements of everyday life and misunderstand the role of ideology and brute force in these societies. So like your book that you were just talking about, shout it out one more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Order to Live by Yami Park. Thank you so much. Probably would give us more of that insider's perspective. Yeah. But what most of the research I found today is this outside-in perspective. So we're going to be looking at it through the American scientist lens. Gotcha. But Dr. Fatali instead focuses on the displacement of aggression, conformity, obedience, fear, and cognitive dissonance as tools to develop and maintain dictatorships, as well as the role of ideology in cementing allegiance. Mm -hmm. So my guess is that when we hear from you today, like, because you gave us a teaser at the end of the last episode, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So that we're going to be kind of going back into North Korea. Correct. So hopefully we'll be getting like more of that insider's perspective. But this was a whole ass book and I didn't read it. (laughs) (laughs) Though it is a unique perspective. He is an Iranian-born psychologist, author, and professor at Georgetown University. The Georgetown University? The Georgetown University. He has a 3.4 for level of difficulty and overall 4 out of 5 on Rate My Professor. Sheesh. Who knew they were still using Rate My Professor? I was going to say that. I so because a lot of mine was research based today. I looked up all the professors. <gasps> Good. So girl. I had to rate my professor throughout. One note: rate my professor did away with the hotness scale. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so for those of for you for some who reason that's not know, important to them anymore. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, there used to be a hotness scale on rate my professor. Like out of five chili, <laughs> chili peppers, chili peppers. How hot was the teacher? <laughs> wow. Our good doctor suggests that since democracies contain, quote, an ever-shifting relationship between democratic and dictatorial tendencies with elements that can pull democracies back to dictatorship, this book has an important implication for citizens of all nations, even our own. So, like, what he's trying to highlight is that even democracies, so... The U.S. has some, like, bastardized form of a democracy, right? Like, it's not truly a democracy. Yeah. You know. (laughs) (laughs) But by studying history, as you say, Uh uh, and don't make me repeat myself. Don't make me repeat myself. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot we can learn from studying the psychology, economics, and other conditions that lead to a dictatorship. Do you remember when I did not want that to be my catchphrase? I just for like a minute. I was like offended by that. Actual Angel Ashley had assigned that to me. Yep. And I was like, that makes me sound so mean. But now I'm like, fuck yeah. <laughs> don't make you repeat yourself. I don't want to. Also, history. Also, you know. history constantly repeats itself. Maybe like for sure. That. It was a great tagline. It Shout was. To it's brilliant. It's totally brilliant. For sure. Okay, so let's talk dictators. We're going to cover a few. You may have heard of them. Beautiful. Adolf Hitler, Germany. Got it. Vegetarian painter. (laughs) Please know random facts about every single one that I'm about to say. That's a lot of pressure. I don't actually expect (laughs) you to do that. Mao Zedong of the People's Republic of China. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stalin, Mm -hmm. Soviet Union. Yep. Probably heard of that one. Pol Pot of Cambodia. Mm -hmm. And these men are just a few, but well-known totalitarian dictators who sought to maintain complete control over their respective governments and populations through radical methods, including systematic murder and imprisonment of all who stood against them. Each of them individually is responsible for more than a million deaths. Wow. And even those who survived lived in constant fear of death, forced labor, and torture. So in 1939... Carl Jung met Hitler and Mussolini in Berlin. Together? Together. Whoa, what was that like? Carl Jung is a psychologist. 
Blah blah blah. You may have heard about him. Heard of him too. He was he was very young. He at one time, right? <laughs> <laughs> but to me, like young Hitler and Mussolini sounds like a play in the making. It sounds like yeah, it sounds like a joke. Like, yeah, it sounds like like, a, like a Elvis pen- Picasso and uh-huh. walk into a bar. Exactly. What were they doing? Talking. Talking. Yep. Never have I ever wanted to be a fly on the wall of any conversation, I think, more than this one. Yeah. Like, Hitler, Mussolini, and Carl Jung. Wow. Weird. Anyways, Jung said that, quote, Hitler never laughed, and it appeared as if he was sulking and in a bad mood. Okay. All that anger. Sure. Jung viewed him as, quote, sexless and inhuman, with a singleness of purpose, Mm. to establish the Third Reich a mystical, all-powerful German nation, which would overcome all of Hitler's perceived threats and previous insults in Germany's history. Tell so me, that's a lot. Sexless? Sexless, yeah. Now, Hitler's wedding was very, you know, deathly. He ended up in a pit on fire, in a ditch. Are you making this up? No. The night that he killed himself, they got married. Really? Mm-hmm. And he set himself and his wife on fire. How did I not remember that? Yeah, girl. Well, in that case, we're going to say sexless. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They waited. That's definitely a mood killer. It is. For sure. It's not uh, ideal. (laughs) (laughs) By contrast, Mussolini apparently came off to Young as, quote, an original man who had warmth and energy. Great. (laughs) We love that. Love that. So, so one was charismatic, the other was not. The other was sexless. Mm. We don't have many accounts of psychologists meeting with dictators. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, dictators typically don't want to meet with psychologists. Yeah. However, how cool would it be if we did? Like, maybe have a psychological test before someone becomes the leader of a country? Mm. Um, didn't they make Trump take one? <laughs> probably. I feel like he would probably pass. He would be the most fit. Just ask anyone. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> yeah. I'm the most psychologically sound. <laughs> Just ask anybody. Yep. You really nailed that. But it's because my it's because I'm so stopped up right now. <laughs> so what do dictators have in common? Tiny Doc- penises, probably. Three penises? Tiny penises, probably. You said three penises. No. I was like, man, what a weird deformity. No, it's not one direction. They don't all have the same <laughs> D. <laughs> <laughs> one D to rule them all. <laughs> oh, man. All right. We have another professor. Okay. Dr. Seth Norholm from mm. Wayne State University is an Where's associate that? professor. There's no state named Wayne. <laughs> that makes no sense. Like the Wayne State, Wayne the Appalachian State, State. I'm like, those aren't names of states. Kennesaw State. Not a real thing. It is in Detroit, Michigan. Detroit. Okay. Detroit. Represent. Yep. Mom's spaghetti. <laughs> All right. So, Dr. Seth Norholm from Wayne State University is an associate professor, but he is not on Rate My Professor, which was really unfortunate. So, he is the he only one I couldn't find. So, real? He can't sit with us. Got he it. doesn't even go here. No. He astutely writes, quote, they see themselves as very special people, deserving of admiration, and consequently have difficulty empathizing with the feelings and needs of others. Not only do dictators commonly show a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, they mm-hmm. also tend to behave with a vindictiveness often observed in narcissistic personality disorder. Yup. That's unsurprising, textbook, right? right? Like, I am surprised. I'm still stuck on the sexless Hitler, though. Oh, we can be stuck on sexless Hitler yeah, for a second. I mean, like the whole narrative of cult and dictatorship and just political leaders in general are mm-hmm. that they're charismatic. So, so I think that they're, I wonder where the line is between like charismatic and performative, maybe performative, but also just like really persuasive. Mm, like a sales mentality. Yeah. So, like, I wonder if Hitler being kind of the face of this and certainly the 
the mastermind, but also he had a lot of help. Oh yeah, like he had a lot of people working behind the scenes with the propaganda, with the youth camps, like trying to convince young German children of different ideologies. Like Hitler didn't do that shit alone, right? So he really didn't have to convince an entire country to love him. He had to convince a small portion of people to love him, but the portion he convinced had to have authority. Oh, interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. Whereas, like, certain people, like, you're, they're just so charismatic, you can't help but like them. Yeah. Or you he can't help but be drawn elected. to them. He was elected. So people did like him. Sure. But I do totally agree with that. Like, you know. Yeah. Not everybody who votes for somebody. Yeah. It's like voting is weird. It's like it's like the lesser of two evils a lot of times. Even sure. He's like literally Satan himself. Right. But yeah, he, he just had to snap his fingers and do the step and they would do it all by themselves. <laughs> so narcissism. That's the whole sentence. So comma narcissism. Period. So, so narcissism. Sucks to suck. Sucks to suck. Folks with narcissistic personality disorder have an exaggerated sense of their own importance and are preoccupied with their own achievements and abilities. This is often underladen with anxiety and a fear of abandonment, but that's for another time. Because what we know is that people who have narcissistic personality disorder don't all become dictators. Oh, of course not. And of course not all dictators have narcissistic personality disorder. So, like... You know, really, most of them do. Yeah, yeah, that we know of. Like, true. We'll, we'll get into that in just a second too. But they do see themselves as deserving of admiration and have difficulty empathiz- empathizing with the feelings and needs of others. So, from Young's observation of Hitler, like check, check, and double check. Narcissistic personality disorder, vindictive, it starts to really check out. But there must be more, right? In fact, there is. There may be as many as six common traits that have been observed or studied in dictators. So let's meet two more professors. These two actually end up being really important for the rest of the thing. Got it. First, we have Fred Coolidge, who has 3.5 out of 5 stars. Okay. I'm rate my professor. And Daniel Seagal, who has 3.9 out of 5 stars. And impressively, he had a 100% rate of people saying that they would take their take another one of his classes no one else had that that's the kind of professors we need for sure they're both at the university of colorado so and they've published a lot of papers together um they're best buds at least you know that's how it reads to me so in 2007 coolidge and seagal connected with five experts on hitler and asked them to evaluate him using the dsm-4 reminder for those of you who have not listened to our dsm-5 episode from season one Go back and do that. The DSM-5, I think, came into play in like 2015. So 2007 was DSM-4. The consensus among the experts was that Hitler had elevated scores in the following personality disorder scales. Paranoid personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Antisocial personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Narcissistic. Mm-hmm. And sadistic. Check, check, check. And check, Yes. There was also a suggestion that he probably had schizophrenic tendencies, including excessive grandiosity and incongruent thinking. Coolidge and Seagal then did the same thing to Saddam Hussein. Oh, okay. Based on informant reports from 11 Iraqi adults who, quote, knew Hussein intimately mm. for a medium median of 24 years so these are oh, people sheesh. who are like super close they got 11 people to do these reports wow i don't know how the fuck they i did know it. right this revealed that he had high scores in the personality disorder scales in the areas of paranoid uh-huh. antisocial narcissistic and sadistic wow though sadistic gestures were stronger in hussein than in hitler There were also probable schizophrenic symptoms as well. There was a high correlation between the derived personality profiles between the two. So like super, super, super similar. Yeah. Like 7 point point something percent similar. Mm -hmm. So we've got these studies from Coolidge and Seagal 
hypothesized that a, quote, big six constellation of personality disorders that may reflect the personalities of dictators more generally. The big six are sadistic, Mm -hmm. antisocial, paranoid, Mm -hmm. narcissistic, Mm -hmm. schizoid, and schizotopal. What the fuck are those? So someone with schizoid personality disorder doesn't typically care about their condition or taking steps to improve their life. On the other hand, someone with schizotopal personality disorder will probably feel a great deal of depression and anxiety as they struggle with relationships and discomfort in these situations. We will have another episode that will be all on its own that looks at schizotopal personality disorder, schizoid personality disorder, schizoaffective, Mm. and schizophrenia. So schizophrenia is like the umbrella one, Uh and then these all kind of gotcha connect okay we will come back to it so put a pen in that got it so back to our guys fred and dan in 2019 they extend their research to include recently deceased dictator of north korea Mm. kim jong-il they were introduced to a south korean academic psychologist who had quote advanced psychological training and intimate established knowledge of kim jong-il oh so this person remained anonymous for very obvious I reasons. Bet they did, but did agree to provide an informant report on the psychological profile of Kim Jong Il. Oh my goodness! Unsurprisingly, yep, he had the same big six. He had all six of them: yep. sadistic, antisocial, paranoid, narcissistic, schizoid, and schizotopal. Yep. <sighs> the big six, more like the big yikes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So there are three caveats to all of this research. Number one, correlation is not causation. So understanding the big six is important to know. And there are plenty of people with some or all of these personality disorders who never become dictators, murderers, or terrorists. And there are dictators that probably have different disorders than this. Mental illness does not exist in a vacuum. Right. So. Wow. Let's throw that out there, right? Number two. We have cultural bias and developing psychiatric diagnoses. So some mental health issues are very well established and are like cross-cultural and universal like schizophrenia, but symptoms can vary in importance and significance across cultures. We can think of this as like a medical versus social model of mental health, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so it may reflect some underlying biological dysfunction, but those diagnoses are determined by people, and those people may be biased because of their own cultural experiences or the lens by which they are doing these things. Also, the questionnaires that were filled out by the informants were validated according to an American sample. Okay. Uh, this is a problem because it means that the response for a given questionnaire may be higher or lower in, for example, North Korean culture than it was by American standards. And number three, all three. Yes. I was just thinking about the North Korean standards obviously would be, <laughs> would be different about their Lord and mental health yeah, and, and, and all that jazz for sure. So, but he still came back positive for all six. Like, yeah. Wow. Well, and, and it would have had to have been, and this person, had they been from North Korea, like one of the things that Yeonmi talks about is like not even having words for things. Yeah. Like not having words for, like not using love, not having words for, just for, for you know, a school bus, just because that didn't exist. Yeah. So like they're, they're, the way that the questions had to have been phrased would have been that they inferred these things through the examples given. Right. Right. Wow. Which does leave room for some uh, interpretation. For sure. For the the person interpreting the information, especially when they have some type of preconceived idea already. Right. But I would still argue that all those things are true. Probably. But but just the, the language thing, I think, is super important. They just don't have those concepts. That reminds me so much of 1984. I can't stand it. Yeah. But they were like actively weeding out words throughout the Mm -hmm. whole book of like, this word will now become obsolete because because we don't need this word because, you know, we don't need this concept anymore. Yami's favorite book is Animal Farm. Great book. I know. I feel like we would have a lot in common. Yeah. At least in our reading taste, maybe and nothing Mm -hmm. else. She lives in Chicago now. Oh, Mm -hmm. good for her. Yeah. 
All right, number three. Of all three studies, only the Hussein informants had a personal relationship with the person they were reporting on. Therefore, additional biases may have been at play with both Hitler and Kim Jong-il. Got it. Makes sense. I'm a little biased, personally. So there are some issues, but still super fascinating research. One article I read said that one trait many dictators share, but is not necessarily correlated to their reign. Dictatorial leaders tend to suffer from excessive anxiety. Mm, That it could all come crashing down at any minute, (laughs) that people will realize it's all a scam. Mostly regarding paranoid fears of citizen uprising. I was just about to say that, which is part of Marxist like that the whole yeah narrative it's even sure. like built into the idea mm-hmm. that like the oppressed will revolt yes and or assassination yeah get so that. saddam hussein here's some of their little quirks saddam hussein used to have multiple meals prepared for him across iraq each day to ensure that no one knew where he was going to be eating Sometimes he would even employ surgically altered body doubles to throw people off. Mm. Wow. I know somebody who was a chef in the Middle East for like military. Uh-huh. It was But that was that's like recent. Oh. So. So, but I'm just thinking. Interesting link up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kim Jong Il, the former leader of North Korea, had a fear of assassination while flying. He exclusively traveled by an armor-plated train, even so far as to go to Moscow from North Korea. Interesting. So there is a train that the train tracks in North Korea are just for his stuff. Right. So it's just for him. Yeah. And so um, Yeonmi's dad was a smuggler, and he somehow was able to get some of his product on that train. To really? Like, yeah, because he was smuggling metals and like trading and doing like the underground kind of trading market but yeah that's all the train is used for that's all the train system is used for is his shit well and apparently to uh keep him safe because he was afraid of flying and then fan chui a burmese dictator was so concerned that he moved the capital of burma to a remote location in the jungle without running water or electricity, which was a tactic that was spurred by advice from his personal astrologer. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we'll talk personal astrologers later because, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, who doesn't want to talk about Nostradamus either? 100%. For sure. I mean, if you are paranoid enough, you're going to be like, am I going to die? What's going to happen? And if you've ever pulled the death tarot card, you can take that how you want, you know? But it's there. Yeah. It's one in however many options. Yeah. Uh, Or the tower. Mm -hmm. Even more terrifying than the death card. Yeah. Okay. So we can talk about the rise and fall of dictatorships and maybe even one day have a better understanding of the inner workings of dictatorships. But understanding the personalities of those in charge is enlightening and eye-opening. And uh, as to how it's possible for systems to change so quickly. Wow. 100%. Yeah. All of those things make sense. The big six. The big six. So hold on to the big six. We're going to come back to schizotopal and schizoid, as well as schizophrenia and schizoaffective. Mm-hmm. So stay wow. tuned for those. But the rest of it checks out. If the shoe fits, you're a dictator. <laughs> oh. Right? A plus B equals C, right? Right. For sure. Which is exactly and what you said. two plus two equals five. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> well, great job. Thank That's super you. interesting. I'm glad you threw some of the Kims in there, or just the that one particular Kim. So when was that study? Uh, so there were three research studies in total. Uh, the first two, I think, were in 2007, and then one in 2009. Okay, perfect. So yeah, I think he died in 2011. Yeah. Let me double check that. I don't want to be wrong about Actually, that. Actually, I think he di- died in like 2008 or nine. Nope, 2011. 2011? Kim oh, Jong-il, okay. 2011. Oh, okay. December well. 17th, 2011. Cool. So one of those was released then before he died, which <laughs> is uh, even like more power to the person who actually yeah. did the reporting for that. Because how fucking terrifying. One of the things that was, this was not in her book, but I did re- uh, watch on her YouTube channel was that each of the Kims have had this like harem of women that's followed them around, which mm-hmm. is not surprising at all. It's like very sure. classic of, of 
like cult leaders and dictators. Right. But she was kind of talking about the difference in appearances of them all. And it kind of, it kind of shows like, like Kim Jong-un, who's currently in power, his preference is like more Western looking women, more Western looking North uh, Korean women. Oh, okay. Because you still can't dilute the, the race. right? Right. But, but still it's like, we know that Kim Jong-un has this um, fascination with, like, American movies and all kinds of stuff that, yeah. like, the other ones didn't or, like, never admitted to. And I don't even know if... I don't know how we know that information. But he's but much do. more interested in, in the West than his father and grandfather. Ah. Anyway, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we are talking about North Korean defectors, part three. So we've spent the last two weeks talking about North Korea and the people who were desperate to get out of North Korea. Today, we're going to be talking about the Americans who defected to North Korea. How many of those do you think that there are? I am going to go with 42. 42. No, it's way less than that. Okay, good. Well, and we'll kind of get into the definition of it, but in total, there were six. Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. Four of which lived there together. At the same time. So I also want to differentiate the difference between defectors and immigrants. Ooh, okay. The reason that we're referring to these individuals in my narrative today as defectors to North Korea is that these individuals defected from the U.S. Army to North Korea. There are people who have immigrated to North Korea that are just civilians. From my research, it looks like it's fair, like surprisingly easy to immigrate to North Korea. The problem is like once they allow you in, the problem is getting out. Right. 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 But the reasons, like what are the reasons that some people would defect to North Korea is that it's you become essentially untouchable from whatever place that you're you're coming from. Um, so debt could be a reason. Running from illegal issues or problems could be a reason as well, as well as just political beliefs. There are people who believe in Marxism and, and, you know, all that stuff to a point where they're willing to go to North Korea to be a part of it. Even though we know that North Korea isn't like a true Marxist state. Correct. Okay. Some people, I mean, yeah, it's wild. Sure. So, I mean... Whatever. Sure. I mean, I feel like um, if you're running away from something, you're potentially running into even more problems. But I mean, I guess desperate times. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, So we are going to start talking with James Joseph Dresnock. And I watched a documentary um, about him, which I will link in my show notes. Um, But he starts off this interview by saying, quote, the story I'm about to tell you now I just want to stress, I've never told nobody. Oh. Nobody. Never told nobody. And then goes on to say, I've never regretted coming to the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Never regretted going to the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. I cannot wait to listen to the rest of that. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's fascinating. So the last time that James, or Joe, as he prefers to be called was last in the U.S. It was 1962. Kennedy was president, gas was 31 cents a gallon, and man was seven years away from landing on the moon. Did man actually land on the moon? That's great. Do you remember that Even Stevens episode? He went to the moon in 1969. I think that's the only reason millennials know when that happened. Yeah. It's when he made a landing that was lunar. Right. Right? Okay. So... You know, at that point, it, like in American history, you'd have to think about the weight that a American defector would be. Like, there's such a real fear of just communism in general in the U.S. And, and something like that just wasn't done. I mean, having it having it happen six times is such a rare experience, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it makes zero sense. It makes as much sense for somebody to have done it then as it does now. Right. <laughs> you know, but he grew up in Virginia, and he was placed in, fo- in a foster home by his parents. He dropped out of high school and joined the military on his 17th birthday. 
So he had a rough start. Yeah. And I think it was pretty common for people to join the military pretty young yeah. then. But um, it was clear that he wanted to kind of go far, far away from mm-hmm. where he grew up. And we'll hear a few different stories about the reasons that each of these people defected, but they're all equally as as interesting. So Joe first joined the military and he did two years in West Germany. After he came home, he finds out that his wife had left him for another man. What? Yeah. So he re-enlists in the army and goes and and is sent to South Korea. Well, what else are you going to do at that point? Well, what's a boy to do? Um, He became a private first class with the 1st Cavalry Division along the Korean demilitarization zone in the early 1960s. So he's like right there. Yeah. Like could, I mean, you can't quite spit that far because it's two and a half miles, but like it's as close as you're going to get. Sure. I've sneezed that hard. (laughs) Soon after he arrives, he finds out that he's facing a court martial for forging a signature on his paperwork. Basically, the paperwork was to give him permission to go off base to like go see like the sex workers. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> so you would get like a pass to leave base, right? Right. So he he did not uh, he didn't get his Hogsmeade slip signed. <laughs> so he just forged it. Sure. And he was about to get in trouble. So instead of facing whatever punishment you know they were going to give him on August fifteenth, nineteen sixty two. While his fellow soldiers were sitting down to lunch, he ran across the me- the demilitarization zone, which is full of, mi- like, uh, it's a minefield. minefield. Yeah. yeah. He ran across it in broad daylight. What? To the North Korean territory. Why? I know. <laughs> I mean, I, I know why, but... It seems like a, like, a, like a scene out of a movie, right? Yeah. Just like broad daylight. He was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. Booked it. Cool. It ran straight across. So, as you can imagine, he was immediately tied up and blindfolded, and they stuck him in a room for one day and one night. And at this stage, he's a prisoner of war. Right. Right? He is then moved into interrogation, which is never good. No. You just, you don't want to do that. I promise you. He can only tell them information that he knows, which is like, you know, who's at what position and who's in charge he, he doesn't have a ton of information because yeah, he's, he's just so kind of a low, low level guy them, yeah exactly um he knew they had certain weapons but of course he knows nothing about big plans or of any real information of interest so the decision is ultimately made they believe him so he lives one morning he wakes up to a familiar face <gasps> larry abjure is peering down at him Larry had defected to North Korea in May of the same year. What? Yeah. So it's like his buddy's like, hey. Hi. Hey. Hi. You made it too. (laughs) Fancy seeing you here. The two became kind of celebrities. I bet they did. And then came Jerry Parrish, who defected to North Korea later that same year as well. I really wanted you to say Jerry Perry. Jerry Perry. Katy Perry defected to North Korea. The three, so there were three GIs and they now had all defected to, you know, North Korea in 18 months. And they're now buddies. And they're, well, they're all in this together at this point. And, and so like North Korea has a choice, you know, they can either use these guys for their benefit or like, you know, why not take advantage of them? Sure. And then there were four and we'll talk in detail about number four later, but his name was Charles Jenkins. Charles Jenkins. Charles Jenkins, which sounds like a made-up name. It sounds both like a made-up name and like the name of every neighbor I've ever had. (laughs) Yeah. It does have a neighbor like a picket fence. It really does. 100%. Mr. Jenkins. Mr. Jenkins. So publicly, um, the the U.S. dissolved itself of any responsibility here. They're like, we don't know what the fuck is happening with these guys. (laughs) We do not know what's happening. They don't don't seem to want to come home. Yeah, it's it's a no-go for us. We're not coming for them. Um, after all, these were all low-ranking soldiers, all with troubled backgrounds. So, you know, what could all of these, you know, Americans who dropped out of high school offer to the North Korean government? Well, whether they liked it or not, these men were now puppets in the communist regime. 
these men were asked to uh, project their voices over the intercoms at the demilitarization zone uh, at the no man's land to try to convince the other American soldiers to defect. What? So they'd be like, hey, Billy, um, <laughs> remember, <laughs> or, things are really great over here, Billy. It's really great. Nobody's forcing me to say this. <laughs> Everything's fine. The grass is truly greener. Dresses. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's, yes. Um, you there's can, no bosses. There's no bosses. Yeah. You can forge a document. They promised them money and women and a whole new life. Anything that they thought would be of value, right? Next came the pamphlets. North Korea propaganda was being delivered over the two and a half miles, the no man's land into the hands of the American soldiers on the South Korea side. Now, remember that North Korea's North Koreans are super anti-American. Um, and now they had these four Americans. So everybody hated these Americans. But on the other hand, they were now these prize defectors who had chosen North Korea over America. Right. So they were like the four Americans they fuck with. They like, were the f- Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, so fuck with everybody. But these four. Right. They can cool. come hang out. They they started to get these these guys into the movies and other like propaganda and they were kind of celebrities in a way. So and even all the celebrities seemed to not be enough. And in 1966, these four Americans tried to escape. So even though they had preferential treatment, even though they were supposedly taken care of and supposedly loved to be there, they all did try to escape to seek asylum in the Soviet embassy, which is like, come on. <laughs> That doesn't seem very smart. No. Whatever. Okay. So they they took the train. So the train that only has one purpose. Correct. <laughs> to the so- to try to get to the Soviet embassy. Um, so if the Soviet embassy accepted them, they hoped that they would be sent to Russia. "Quote: We thought that because they were white, they would accept us too. The Russians didn't treat us good. You don't say. Right. They so the the um the Soviets notified the Korean government." Quote, I didn't believe that the Korean government would punish us for that. They had to educate me more. End quote. Is that not? Like, I didn't think we'd get in trouble, but they had to, you know, educate me more about what I deserved in that moment. Yikes. So Joe says that after this incident, he pulled, he like fully emerged himself into the culture. He studies, learns the language, and adapts to the ideologies of the great leader. After this event, all propaganda activity ceased. Had they outgrown their usefulness? For seven years, according to Joe, they stayed pretty close to home. They read books and novels about the government, of course. Because what else is there to read? Right. So they smoked cigarettes in the sun and they hung out and they were never a prisoner. So he's saying that there was like the seven years of like just hanging out. It was fun. Yeah, studying almost. It was like a university kind of chapter. After those seven years, they were granted citizenship and could go out in the world and work for the revolution. They went back to work in the movies after the seven years. In 1978, they starred in a film about the Korean War, which was supposed to depict the North Koreans as the winners and saviors. So Joe had a main role in this production. Kim Jong II was also in the movie. He became interested in film during this time. The film series had 20 was 20 features long and Shit. would have been one of the only means of entertainment at the time. The four were officially valuable again. Joe married for the second time to a woman named Do- Doina Bombay. In his interview, he didn't ever mention her name. I had to look up her name. This is like buckle your fucking seatbelt. Okay. They had two children together and he said that she made him miserable. And so, of course, I had to do some digging. So in the interview, he's like, I was married and she was terrible. So I start researching. I'm like, who was, you know, Joe's first wife? It turns out she was born in Romania. It is reported that North Korea kidnapped this woman overseas in something that's called spouse sourcing as a program for the American defectors in North Korea. Uh, Allie, I'm going to need you to do an entire episode on spouse sourcing. It's, fu- it's, 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 it's like, it's, it's the worst thing I've ever heard. Um, and it's because they don't want mixed race children. They have to keep the North Korean bloodline pure. So these, these white guys can't marry North Korean women. So what are their kids going to do? I don't know. 
they're going to steal more people <gasps> and enslave more people, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know. I don't know. But it's, it's a way to diversify, uh, you know, it, it's, it's so that they can keep the bloodline pure, but it's also a way to diversify this potential spy network without muddying the genetic pool of its citizens. So it's reported that Doi, Doina, I don't know how to say her name, I'm sorry, was forcibly married in the early 1980s to Joe by North Korean authorities, but she died of lung cancer in January of 1997. Joe remarried again in 2001 in an, to an unnamed woman. I could not find who she was. She's a biracial woman. She's the daughter of a North Korean woman and a West African diplomat. So she is a product of, you know, right the, the thing but it's it's wild but it's okay because she's already not true correct so they're going to marry her to a non-korean oh wow right? so all of the defectors all of these american men were married to non-korean women every single one larry absher was said to have been married to a woman from thailand jerry parish is his wife was lebanese and charles jenkins wife was japanese you have got to be kidding no. me this is like a whole level of human trafficking. It is. I mean, I knew it existed, mm-hmm. but like hearing about it in this way. Yeah. Wow. And it's and it's it's modern. Like it's happening now. Right now. Right now. Right now. So in April 2017, it was reported that Joe had died the previous year. So we're finding this shit out like a year later, right? It's not even it's not even happening, you know, right now. Um, in August 2017, his sons confirmed that he had died of a stroke in November of 2016. They released a statement saying that their father told them to remain that he remained loyal to Kim Jong Un, and they also stated that they would destroy the U.S. if it launched uh, a pre a preemptive strike against the North against North Korea. Wow. So, Joe was very pro North Korea. Now. We're about to hear from Charles Jenkins, who has a different viewpoint. Okay. And we'll talk about how those have, are polarizing opinions. Yeah. So now as you know, fellow defector, Charles Jenkins had a very different experience after he crossed the border in North Korea. Quote, thinking back now, I was a fool, he said, as he reflects on his time. Charles grew up in North Carolina. Hey. Hey. In a large family. Um, he dropped out of high school and joined the military. In 1964, he started his second tour in Korea. And after being asked to do more dangerous military tasks and hearing the rumor that he may get shipped to Vietnam, he got scared. So he started to think about defecting because I guess he just it just came from fear. Sure. He thought that the process of him going to North Korea would mean that they would trade him as a prisoner of war. So he was not intending to go there forever. So his plan was, let me go. I'll get out of doing this other thing. And then eventually I'll get traded back. Right. Like I'm in the NFL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'll bring me back to the U.S. Yeah. Okay. Yep. 100%. He probably told himself he could have come up with a, a lie about being caught in a... Sure. You know, who... I don't know. Who knows? But on January 5th, uh, 1965, at age 24... Charles drank 10 beers, okay? <laughs> and at 2.30 in the morning, he disappeared into the night. He took the bullets out of his M14 and tied a white t-shirt to his gun to wave in the air. He walked for several hours into North Korea. So he's like past everything. He's like in North Korea. He's just like waiting for somebody to find him. Right. Um, little did he know that he would be imprisoned for 39 and a half years. What? Yes. Well, he's captured and he meets up with the three other defectors. And they're like, hey. Hey. So here's the different side of the coin. Okay. Charles claims that those first seven years before they earned the citizenship, where Joe was like, we were just hanging out and reading and smoking cigarettes. Charles is saying that they were forced to study the government text and memorize the passages for eight hours a day, seven days a week for seven years. That sounds a little different than like hanging out, reading and smoking. Yeah. He was like, you couldn't go outside. They wouldn't let you leave. All, you know, they're, you know, 
they're brain, confi- they're trying to like brainwash you yeah trying to brainwash you so after he did gain his citizenship after seven years he was assigned a wife which we'll kind of come back to he was told um, by the government that he was to have sex with his wife two times per month no more no less Okay. Okay. It was also discovered around that time that Charles had a tattoo on his left forearm of two rifles with the words U.S. Army, and they held him down without anesthetic and cut the tattoo out with scissors. <gasps> yes. Ooh, ow. <sighs> so in, in 1850, he'd been there for 15 years. This is when he's assigned his wife, right? His leaders brought him a 21-year-old Japanese woman to his door, Right. Her name was Hitomi Soga, and she was kidnapped from Japan and one of the most bizarre intelligence operations that ever existed. North Korea was abducting average Japanese citizens and forcing them to teach Japanese to North Korean citizens in the hopes of creating creating an international spy network. What? Just snatching people off the fucking street, bringing them to North Korea. This story gets more and more wild I know. the deeper we go into I it. I know. It's utterly terrifying. I know. I know. And 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 so there's this there's there's the sub thing that's happening that's trying to they're trying to to prevent everyone from knowing about the outside world. Right. But at a certain point, how are they how are they going to, you know, advance their North Korean agenda yeah. if they're just staying put, right? So Part of that, I guess, is trying to create a spy network. Uh, it's fucking wild. His wife was kidnapped as she walked down a highway, just like a main highway. She was stuffed in a car, then put on a boat, and was brought by sea to North Korea. The only two things that they had in common was that they were prisoners and they hated North Korea. So now, please take this with a grain of salt, but Charles says that they fell in love. He says that each evening they would say goodnight to each other, she in English and he in in Japanese. He said that this was to remind each other that they were Japanese and American and not North Korean, and that could never be taken away from them. Oh, Yeah. That's sweet. I know. I know. So 22 years after their marriage and after two kids in 2002... To improve relations, like international relations, Kim Jong II admitted to the Japanese Prime Minister that North Korea had kidnapped 13 Japanese citizens. Wow. Right. I'm like, why are you admitting that? (laughs) I'm glad you did, but I don't (laughs) get it. Good Um, job, but also, why? As a political move, the North Korean government returned these 13 victims back to their country. This left Charles and their two kids behind in North Korea. After all, he knew that if he went, he'd be extradited back to the U.S. for desertion. But she got to go home. She got to go home. But she had to leave her kids behind? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, that hurts. I know. I know. Okay. I know. After two years, he decided that going to prison would be worth it if he could see his wife again. They were reunited in Indonesia. Do we know how they got to Indonesia? Like, that seems real random. No, I don't know how they got to Indonesia. Okay. I think, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, because you can't really leave. Well, I was thinking, like, even if one of them could leave, like, how would they get letters back and forth how to would each they other? Communicate? Yeah, until they get to Indonesia. I don't know. Wow. Okay. Maybe there was periodic check-ins from the Japanese government. Maybe. Or maybe he... Maybe like, they sent for him. Maybe. I'm not sure. That's a good or point. Or maybe he got to Indonesia somehow and then wrote her a letter and then she came to Indonesia. We could speculate all we want. I don't know that she ever goes, well, yeah, it does say they were reunited in Indonesia. Uh-huh. I don't know. But in September of 2004, he reported to an army base in Japan. Okay. A U.S. army base in Japan. Okay. Um, no defector had returned so far after defecting. Almost... 40 years can you imagine wow sheesh like a whole lot has changed in 40 years Mm -hmm. so he pled guilty to desertion and aiding the enemy and he did serve a 25 day prison sentence which is to me well worth it he's certainly served his time yeah for sure 100 um today he lives in japan 
Oh, with his wife? Mm-hmm. Good. Before he came uh, to be with her in Japan, he needed to make sure that their love would outlast the situation of being kidnapped in a foreign land. Makes sense. Quote, I told her, this is Japan. You're still young. If you want me to go, I'll go. And she said, no. She told me no. Oh. I he, hope the kids were with them. Yes, I believe okay. so. I believe so. I don't know. I would hope so. God, I hope so. Jesus Christ. He was able to see his 91-year-old mother Aww. before she passed away. Good. He was able to come back to North uh, North Korea, North Carolina, and do like a hometown visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he Go does... to a high school football game. <laughs> ride yeah. in a uh, pickup truck. I mean, think about it. Like, he'd been gone since the 60s. Like... There were no more sock hops. North Korea doesn't even have electricity, <laughs> right? They don't even have running water in their houses shit i know like unless you live in um the like the the capital you know you don't have running water in your house so and 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 i'm sure because he was a an actor you know he was taken care of way better right right um 100 he passed away on december 11th 2016 or excuse me 2017 okay so like a year after the other guy but he was able to to come home ish like to to, to japan the real interesting thing is that these people are being interviewed right mm-hmm. jenkins had done an article i think with 60 minutes that had come out right when uh joe the conservative guy who says i love north korea sure that came out before he did his interviews so the whole time joe was like very pro north korea uh-huh. and i think that that's because this article had come out from Jenkins saying about the other guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they were like, you need to make sure that when you're going to do this documentary and you're going to say that you love to be here. Right. And this is the best country on earth. Yeah, for sure. So wow. they definitely spun it, but, but they talked about how those two didn't get along the whole time. Yeah. And, and just kind of about how Jenkins never really wanted to absorb the culture and how, you know, Joe was, you know, it was important to him to, you know, I he was started reading defector. the books. Yeah. Yeah. And then everything started to make sense. And then, and, you know, I started believing in everything. And so I can't even imagine what that no. must have been like. Wow. But that is... The story of the two North Korea, or two of the six, yeah. Two of the six American defectors to North Korea. Wow. Well. Well, let's talk intersections. Dictators. Boom. 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 Done. Done. Um, The narcissism is a yes for me. Yeah. I mean, I think the narcissism, the personality disorders, mental health stuff, it's all there. I think the anxiety comes through, like with the North Korea has to look a certain way and, you know, people have to think of North Korea a certain way. Yeah. Because if not, it's a house of cards that could potentially crumble. Yeah. It's like Oz. Yeah. Ooh. Don't look behind the curtain. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. That's a really good point. I mean, nobody gets to come in and have a look at... There's very few pieces of media that come intentionally from North Korea. And the fact that they even let him do that interview is surprising to me. But they were going to be sure to have their claws in him. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, to make sure that it came across the right way. So I agree with you on the anxiety piece. Yeah. I think that those are the two biggest. And of course, I tailored mine to match yours this week so next week we'll get back to regularly to the scheduled randomness. randomness podcasting 100 well i hope you guys enjoyed the three-parter about uh north korea super interesting again i definitely recommend um you know yanmi park's book or and she has another book i haven't read but i'm sure it's fucking great also read 1984 if you have not an animal farm if you have not um, reading about how these things happen, even if it's fiction, is still important. 100%. If you guys aren't on Patreon, check it out. You get access to our season two recipe. It is so good. And everybody's been uh, super excited to learn what it is and about the, the information, which is obviously secret. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> we might have a mid-season reveal. We'll see. Maybe, maybe. um but thank you guys for all the support for season two we are just continuing to be in awe of how great everybody is so you know we hear you on social media and we'd love to hear from you so 
if you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaud at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening. Keep listening.